Please turn with me online or on paper to John chapter 3, verses 23 through 30. Today is the third Sunday in Advent, and we've been saying that this is a season we keep on our way to our celebration of Christmas. The whole point of Advent is to look back at Christ's first coming in order to prepare for His second coming. So we're getting four views of Christmas this month. We got Paul's view uh, the first week, beginning with hope. And that's the overarching theme of all of Advent, hope that sustains. Last week and this week, we're looking at Christmas through the eyes of John the Baptist. Last week, we saw John as the final Old Testament prophet. And this week, we'll look through John's eyes as we see him as the friend of the groom. And next week, we're going to see things through Mary's eyes. The themes connected to each of these weeks, like we've been saying all along, are hope, peace, joy, and love. And this is how it works. I said hope is a fire on the inside, right? It sustains us and it propels us forward. Hope is a fire that is burning from three logs, peace, joy, and love. Peace that reconciles all things comes to us through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. He is our peace, justifying us before God and reconciling us to Him and to each other. Today, we're looking at John the Baptist again. This time, it's for a joy that transforms all things. This third week of Advent, as I've said, is known in Latin as Gaudate Sunday, Latin for joy. And that's why the candle is pink. Now look, there's, there's nothing in the Bible uh, about keeping this tradition, but I hope that our journey through this tradition and through these themes is, is putting some air in it for you, is, putting, is bringing some life to it for you. Because we need a hope that sustains us until Christ returns. We need the peace, joy, and love that make up that hope. So here now, John chapter 3, verses 23 through 30, which is God's word, eternally true. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. Please pray with me. Now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Amen. A new adventure begins. I mean, 
That would be a cliche phrase, uh, except for the fact that this week I saw the phrase, a new adventure begins at the top of a very special picture that I'd like to describe to you. In this picture, there's a, a golden sun setting on the runway at a small airport. And there, on the uh, runway of the airport, there's a quaint old two-seater prop plane in the foreground. And in front of the plane, two people are standing, and I happen to know these two people. Uh, the one is a six-foot-three young man in jeans and a button-down shirt. He's staring at the camera with what I would describe as the confidence of youth. Uh, the other person is his fiance, holding him and standing there in a casual blue dress. She's shorter than him. She's not as tall as he is, uh, but she is looking not at the camera, not at the sunset, not at the plane. She's looking right up at him, and she has this huge, beautiful smile stretched across her face. And uh, the picture's been sitting on my desk, and every time I read John's words this week about being the friend of the bridegroom and his joy being made complete, I kept finding my joy with my eyes going back to this picture of my friends and uh, their wedding. I'm looking at their joy that's starting to transform them as they anticipate their wedding this spring. Where have you experienced a joy that transforms I mean, from a beer with a good friend to the birth of a child, joy has a way of transforming us. It makes the unbearable bearable. It makes the good great. It takes cliches, like a new adventure begins, and it makes them fresh. But so often, I find that my joy is fleeting. It flies away as quickly as it lands. Now, in our passage today, John's disciples and all of Israel at the time are looking for an ultimate joy that can transform. They've put all their hope in looking for a Messiah who will bring them joy. Some of them are wondering if that Messiah could be John. But John is going to set them straight about his role at this wedding. Now, we're often like Israel was. Uh, we keep setting our hope on fleeting joys rather than recognizing that our joy may be fleeting now, but it's pointing us, all our earthly joys that are fleeting are pointing us toward an eternal joy, and that's what we put our hope in. Remember, hope is a fire made of the logs of peace and love and joy, and we must live lives of hope because Jesus is the bridegroom who brings us an eternal joy. And John is going to help us see Jesus as the source of eternal joy in this passage when we look here at purification, at heaven, and the wedding. Purification, heaven, and the wedding. So, seeing Jesus as the source of eternal joy begins here in verses 23 through 26 with a debate about purification. So I'll lead off by saying that, friends, we need a purification that leads to transformation. Uh, and I know you're not impressed with that rhyme, uh, because that's the kind of thing that preachers always come up with, right? Uh, and they make things up like that. But what, is, what does that mean exactly? This is what it means. This pericope, or this story, happens in John's gospel between two other stories, we want to see that this discussion in verse 25 happens in a particular context. The story that comes before is the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. 
The story that comes after is the encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. Nicodemus was a religious Jew, a teacher in Israel. The woman at the well was culturally Jewish, but living immorally. So on either side of this story in verse 25 is the religious and the immoral. But do you know what the two stories have in common? Both people, when they encounter Jesus, are fooling themselves, pretending that they're something that they are not. Nicodemus is religious, fooling himself about how much he knows about God. And the woman at the well is fooling herself, thinking she can get away with her life choices while no one is watching. I just want to say that pretending that you're something you're not robs you of real joy in life, no matter how you do it. One of these people pretends religiously, and it's robbing him of joy. The other is pretending irreligiously, and it's robbing her of joy. And right in the middle of these two encounters, we get this passage where Jesus isn't mentioned by name at all, but he's very much at the center of the discussion. Jesus has been baptizing, and he's been becoming more popular than John the Baptist, and it's starting to worry John's disciples. And that's why it says in verse 23, John also was baptizing. Now, this location uh, was probably about halfway between the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea on the south, and it's on the west side of the Jordan River. The word anon is a, is a Greek rendering of a Semitic word that means springs. Now, why did they name the place springs? Well, it says because there was much water there. It has everything to do with the geography uh, and nothing to do with some sort of weird doctrine of immersion. Jesus was baptizing. We find out in John chapter 4 verse 2 that actually Jesus was overseeing his disciples who were performing baptisms. John was also baptizing. And where there was plenty of water here at Springs, there were also plenty of people. And John, the gospel writer, reminds his first readers in verse 24 that this scene takes place before the time when John the Baptist was put in prison. That, in essence, is the timestamp on this passage. So we know where that's happening. It's before John was put in prison. It's between these two encounters that Jesus has. And the discussion between John's disciples and a certain Jew begins in verse 25, and we get a picture of the anxiousness robbing joy from John's disciples in verse 26, when they come to John and they say, Rabbi, the other guy is getting more customers than us. They don't mention Jesus by name, but they say all are going to him, which is a way of saying they aren't coming to us. Rabbi John, maybe your advertising campaign was off. You bore witness to that guy and now all the people are headed to his gathering and not to ours. Implied in that is, shouldn't you do something about that, John? The anxiety of John's disciples robs them of joy because they're pretending that there's something they're not. I don't think it's malicious. I just think they don't understand. But John's going to explain it to them in just a minute. What they don't see is that the baptism of John was a baptism getting people ready for the baptism of Jesus. Last week, we saw the same John saying this in a different way. He said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a purification that would lead 
to transformation. John gets people ready for the Messiah. The Messiah transforms not only the outward circumstances of the people, but he transforms the heart and mind. People didn't know they needed that. They thought they needed a Messiah to transform their national misfortune. A Messiah to, to, in essence, put the right people in office. Their hope was on the outside. John is saying that their hope must first be a fire on the inside. Now, who will light that fire? The argument over purification here was an argument about who is the Messiah? Is it John or is it Jesus? Who is going to be the refining fire which they saw as the Messiah who would refine their outward circumstances? John, aren't you the one who's starting this work of purification? Now, I guess I would say when I look at this, isn't that kind of what we want? We get anxious about outward circumstances a lot. I do. And if there's a religion that will help us fix those circumstances, oh man, I'm in. Whether it's uh, the religion of a diet or the religion of a life philosophy uh, or a certain speaker's take on Christianity, we look around to see who has the most customers and we latch ourselves onto that wagon train hoping that it'll change somehow our outward circumstances. But Christianity does not transform you from the outside in. Christianity, following Christ, transforms you from the inside out. Jesus doesn't change the nation and then transform you. He transforms you so that you're ready for how he is transforming not just the nation, but the whole world. A world that in this time and place for the Jews would eventually even include the Gentiles. Have you washed away your old ways of thinking, purification, so that you're ready for what Jesus is doing in the world today, transformation? Let's keep going. I I said John's disciples don't understand, but that John would explain it. And he does that in verses 27 and 28 when he speaks about heaven. So verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Is John talking about himself, or is he talking about Jesus? He's talking about both. John and Jesus aren't in a joy-robbing competition. They're working together under orders from above. And I say joy-robbing competition because that's what John's disciples, unfortunately, are headed toward. Now, look, there is a kind of competition that can bring joy. I'm not saying all competition automatically robs you of joy. But there is the possibility and the danger that we can engage in joy-robbing competition if we don't see how God is working all things together for good. John can't receive something unless it's given him from heaven, his mandate as the forerunner to baptize. Jesus can't receive something unless it's given him from heaven, his mandate as the Messiah to gather all the lost sheep of Israel. Even John's disciples can't receive something unless it's given to them from heaven. And that's what he points out in verse 28, right? John goes, hey, guys, you just said that in verse 26, I bore witness to Jesus. That's true. Do you remember what that witness was? I said plainly, John's speaking, he says, I am not the Christ, not the Messiah, but I am the one who has been sent before him. 
Don't lose the joy of that truth that you've received. Don't be anxious that all are going to Him. We were never in competition. It's so easy to get tripped up in joy-robbing competition. That was happening not just to John's disciples, but it was also part of Nicodemus's problem in that previous pericope. Jesus, when he meets Nicodemus, tells him he must be born again or born from above. Heaven has to figure into the equation, Nick. Otherwise, you just have religion. Religion begins and ends with mankind. Men and women make up the things that they think they should do to live as if there is a God. Theology, however, begins in heaven. Theology begins at God's throne. Theology is thinking God's thoughts after him. Jesus, in essence, is saying, Nick, you're stuck in religion pretending that you made God. You need to start in heaven with theology and begin thinking God's thoughts after him. And later in that story, Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 12, If I told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Jesus there is showing Nicodemus that he has come down from heaven. Jesus has crossed the border and brought God's throne near. That's the whole point of the incarnation. That's the true meaning of Christmas. That's the thing we're waiting for again in Advent. God is not waiting for us to climb up to heaven. He's wondering if we will let ourselves be transformed by the joyful news that heaven has come looking for you in the humble person of Jesus Christ. Being part of a religious competition brings fleeting joy, but recognizing Jesus as the Messiah and learning from his words and deeds brings eternal joy, joy that transforms. We're all in danger of this joy-robbing competition. Nicodemus was part of one party. John's disciples saw themselves as part of another party. Both were in danger. How about you? What's the religious party that you might be in danger of being part of? I mean, is it the dangerous part of being Presbyterian or the dangerous part of being Reformed? Is it the religion of following one teacher over another, one branch of theology over another? Or do you have uh, maybe a religion, not like those things that I was talking about, but, but a, a religion of competition, You know, schoolwork can be very religious, and you can compare yourself to others, and you can have your joy robbed from you in that comparison. And uh, it's a competition that can happen even if it's not announced between students. I mean, I'll point out pastors, we fall into this joy-robbing competition all the time. Who has more people? Who has more power on a committee? Uh, Or who is more important in the presbytery? Now, of course, I'm sure that never happens to any of you in your work. I'm sure it never happens to any of you in your families, right? But what would it look like? What would it look like if we realized in a new way that every good thing we have has come down from above, as it says in James 1? What if we recognize that everything we've learned about God has come to us as a gift given by the Holy Spirit through the Word preserved for us throughout time? What if we recognize that our abilities at work and at school are gifts to be stewarded rather than competitions to be won? 
What if God is at work in you to transform your enemies into your friends? Or what if he's at work in your suffering to bring you closer to him for comfort rather than always relying on your own abilities? Look, I'm not going to pretend to say that it's easy, but it is transformative. And the end of it is joy. That's what John is trying to get his disciples to see. And that's what Jesus was trying to get Nicodemus to see. And that's why he said those famous words to Nicodemus in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And John saves the real joy for us in what he says next. In verse 29, John talks about the wedding. It's it's not a random reference. It would not have been lost on the audience standing around John the Baptist or the first audience reading John's gospel. So we need to make sure that this reference is not lost on us either. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's bride. In a good translation of Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, God calls Israel by the name, My delight is in her. He names her land married, as in married to Yahweh, the God who saved you. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, God offers a complaint about Israel as his unfaithful wife. But in Hosea, the prophet, chapter 2, verses 16 through 20, God talks about betrothal or getting engaged to Israel. He says to Israel, I will betroth you in justice, betroth you in steadfast love and mercy, betroth you in faithfulness. I mean, these references are just three examples of this kind of marriage language in the Old Testament. So I want to remind you, keep your eyes peeled for this kind of imagery in the Old Testament whenever you read it. Now, John says something that's obvious. Whoever has the bride, that's the bridegroom. And then he says something related to that. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And then John says something specifically about himself. Therefore, my joy is complete. Do you get the logic of it? If John's joy is complete, then who is he in this analogy? He's the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, John is not the Messiah. He is the one sent before the Messiah. He is before him in time, but not before him in rank. John's disciples thought John might be the Messiah. And everyone in Israel is looking for a Messiah at that time. And John was certainly uh, in the running as a potential contender. But John is the one who says, I am not the groom. I'm the one whose whole life, the point is to, uh, the, the idea behind it is to point others toward the groom. John says, in essence, I'm the best man. Does your life Help point people toward the groom. If you experience the joy that transforms all things, it will. I promise you, it can't help but do it. 
And the example of that is the pericope of the woman at the well that I mentioned earlier, uh, right? Uh, she's a woman living an immoral lifestyle. And without breaking down the whole story, because that would spin me off into a whole other sermon, uh, it's most likely that this woman came to the well uh, just sort of looking to find uh, another man. Uh, and there's an old book titled Speaking of Jesus that I uh, recommend to you that, that uh, is by a guy named Max Stiles. And he talks about this idea of what the woman at the well was really looking for, if you want to check on uh, what I'm saying. But we also find out about this woman at the well that she had five husbands. And her immorality is implied in that detail about the five husbands, especially when Jesus says to her, and the man you have now is not your husband. When this woman encountered Jesus, she was pretending that she was something she wasn't. She somehow convinced herself she could get away with her lifestyle. This husband isn't working? Well, try another. Marriage isn't working? Well, try a man without marriage. Jesus is this guy at the well, and he seems interesting. Uh, Maybe I'll try him. I'll talk religion with him. He uh, He seems interested in that. But long story short, Jesus calls her bluff. He lets her know that he sees her. He knows about her lifestyle. And now it's true in our world and theirs that many men, when they find that they're dealing with an immoral woman, they choose to treat her immorally. And she may have even been expecting such a treatment from Jesus, but imagine her surprise when he doesn't treat her that way. Instead, he tells her that he is the source of an eternal spring of water, the water of life. He tells her not only who she is, but he tells her who he is, the Messiah. And it transforms her. In her joy, she goes back to town and her life now points other people towards the bridegroom. She brings them and she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. She becomes like John. She is another FOB, friend of the bridegroom. She stands and she hears him and she rejoices greatly. And when you experience Jesus as the source of eternal joy, the deepest longings of your heart and your mind are fulfilled. Literally, the word in verse 29 that the ESV translates complete means has been fulfilled, as in the water has been fulfilled into the pitcher, and now the spring is overflowing and it's flowing out all over across the land. And then John says something that I think is often misunderstood in verse 30. He says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. And I've, let a, I've met a lot of Christians who take this verse and turn it into something that uh, is, is kind of Buddhist or uh, kind of a false modesty. Some people uh, apply John's statement to themselves too much. Uh, something like, Jesus must increase and I must cease to have my own personality. Or I must cease to have my own desires. And if you do that, uh, you're making what I will jokingly call the Carly Simon error. You're so vain, you think this song is about you. (laughs) And kids, if you don't get that, ask your parents later. Uh, This is what I mean. John is talking about himself and his role as the forerunner to the Messiah. John is saying about himself, now that the light has come, the lamp has done its work. John's role as the forerunner was for a season. 
But John's personality, his life, and his desires were part of him forever. And even after his role ended, his life still pointed others to Jesus. And so it is with you who rejoice in Jesus as the bridegroom. Your life will always point to Jesus, but your role may change. You may have seasons of being a student, a parent, a grandparent, an employee. In all these places, your joy in Jesus transforms your role. But you don't lose your personality or your God-given desires. Instead, those desires are actually transformed. They're refined. Yes, parts of you, who you are, will change. But some things are going to remain the same. But I've seen many who have taken this too personally and said, I must decrease until their life becomes a sort of Christianized doormat. Now, I don't expect all of you to understand uh, what I'm saying or, or, or need this, but some of you do. And some of you need to hear this, uh, that John isn't talking about you. He's simply telling us that it's time for the wedding Right? In essence, he's saying, quit fawning over me. I'm not the Messiah. Look at Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the bridegroom. Like my friends Peter and Claire that I told you about in their picture at the beginning of this, marriage anticipated brings joy. And that expected joy transforms all things. The church is the bride-to-be, holding on to and looking up at the groom, knowing that he changes us. It begins with a purification that leads to transformation. Ultimately, this is the work that Jesus came to do on the cross. His blood is paid for your impurities, and we are justified before God in his resurrection. In Christ, we receive the joy of heaven. We learn to think God's thoughts after him, and we avoid joy-robbing competition because we're constantly looking into the face of our bridegroom. And we await the ultimate wedding. In Advent, we anticipate the wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of time when Jesus will come again. Until then, the joy that you're receiving transforms your life more and more. And the identity underneath all your identities points others toward Jesus. We started last week burning the log of peace that reconciles all things. That's the justification we have in our relationship with God. And today we've added the log of joy that transforms all things. That's the sanctification we have experiencing our union with Christ. Everyone's invited to receive that joy. Everyone's invited to let go of irreligion or religion that may be weighing you down so that you can be transformed. Jesus is our source of eternal joy that transforms. Let's pray. Almighty God, you who sent John the Baptist as a forerunner, telling of the coming justification and sanctification in your Son, grant us joy that transforms our lives, that we may point others to the Messiah, Jesus, who's worshipped with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.